Sarah, Genesis 23, verse 1, and Sarah was 107 and 20 years old, 127 years old, and these are the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, the same is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abram came to mourn for Sarah to work for her, weep for her. Now, Abram was at Beersheba. He was, uh, he was first at, in, in Bethel, then down to Egypt, and then back into Canaan, to Beersheba. And then in chapter 23, uh, he was at Beersheba when he offered Isaac, Genesis 22. Then in 23, he goes back to Hebron. And in Genesis 23 and 24 and Genesis 25, all three chapters take place in Hebron, which is south of Jerusalem. I think it's south of Jerusalem, about 20 miles, if my memory serves me right. Here's the lamb. Now, how old was Abraham when he died? Genesis chapter 25, verse 7. How, many, how old would that be? 175. You know what a score is, don't you? You read any of Billy Graham's recommendations. He said, I've given away scores of these. He says that in Eric Sauer's book. Scores. The score is 20. Three scores, 60 and 15, and that means 175 years old. Now we got three things in these 18 verses. You look at it. Abram's marriage to Keturah. Second, Abram's disposition of his look at it. Abram's marriage to Keturah. Second, Abram's disposition of his wealth and poverty. Abraham's death and burial. Then the history of Ishmael, which closes out Abraham's story. Now let's begin with the first one. It's the marriage of Abraham to Keturah. Abraham's marriage to Keturah. Chapter 25, verse 1. Then again, Abraham took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him. Zimran, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shuai. Now six sons. And then he takes one son, Jokshan, begat Sheba and Dedan. Then he takes Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Ashuram, and Letushim, and Leuman. And the sons, now you try that sometime. <laughs> and the sons of Midian, Ephah, and Ephor, and Hanok, and Abida, and Eldaah. All these are the children of Keturah. Now, when you, normally when they select some of the sons to describe, they are sons that come up later on. He selects Midian because one of the enemies of Israel were the Midianites. He selects, one of them that he selects is um, Shua. And uh, the reason he selects Shua is because uh, later on in the book of Job, we have Bill died the Shuai, and he comes, no doubt, from Shua. All right, so here's the death, here's the marriage to Keturah. Married her in Hebron, and married her after Sarah died. Now, she's called, a little later on, she called in verse um, 6, the concubine, unto the sons of the concubine. Now, the concubines would be Hagar, and Keturah, Sarah, Hagar, Keturah. Hagar was the true concubine. Probably not Keturah, but it was probably that nobody, she's called a concubine because in Abraham's um, uh, vision, his perspective, no one ever took the place of Sarah. But he did marry again. Uh, Sarah died, and after Sarah died, he married um, he married Keturah, and uh, although she's called in verse 6 concubine, yet in verse 1, what is she called? His wife. So is she truly a wife, despite the fact that she's called a concubine? Why does the Scripture call it? Because nobody really could take the place in Abraham's perspective of, um, of Sarah. Now, Keturah bore Abraham six sons. Now, I, that's remarkable. See, apparently Abraham's power of reproduction was uh, in the birth, in the power and strength that God gave to Abraham supernaturally, supernaturally to give birth when he was 100 years age. That power lasted with him. And after, after he was, well, how old was he when 
Sarah died. 137. And he married Keturah, and after his 137, he had six children by Keturah. Now, we know that some men had children when they were four or five hundred years old, but that's when they lived to 900. Here's a man that died at 175, and he bore children when he was 137. God's promise rejuvenated supernaturally Abraham. Now, he had these descendants, six sons, and out of the son of Jokshan, he had Dedan, and there are just two that we want to notice in passing. One of them is, um, one of them is, uh, is Midian. Verse 2, she bore him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan, Midian, and Ishbak and Shua. You remember later on, um, uh, the Midianites are mentioned uh, in, later on in the Scripture. In fact, uh, Joseph was sold into slavery to the Midianites. They were traitors. And later on in the, uh, in the book of Judges, the Midianites uh, uh, come up once again in the story of Gideon, in Judges chapter 6. Gideon fought against the Midianites. The Midianites oppressed them, and God raised up Gideon, and Gideon gave them victory against the Midianites. They were, uh, they were enemies of Israel. Then the other one that stands out is this S-H-U-A-H, because probably from this one, Cave, uh, that person in the Old Testament called Bildad, the Shuhite. Now, David's got a little joke. <laughs> David says that the shortest man in the, build, in the Bible was Bildad, the Shuhite. See? <laughs> now, you'll get that. Some of you won't get it for about an hour. See, I always thought, I always thought that the shortest man in the Bible was Nehemiah. And then he told me one day, no, it's Bildad the Shuhite. And that comes from this one. Now, the next thing we notice, uh, we notice that uh, none of these uh, six sons inherited anything. None of them inherited parallel with Isaac. And yet, you remember, God's promise to Abraham was that he was going to make him a father of what? Many nations. Many nations. So not only Isaac, but also Ishmael, and also, uh, six of them, Keturah. There was Sarah, gave him Isaac, and Ishmael. Hagar gave him Ishmael, and Keturah, who gave him these six sons. And therefore, uh, uh, he had three wives, descendants from these three wives. But when it came to disposing his estate, he only left the property and the wealth to Isaac. There was a reason for that. That leads us to verses 5 and 6. Very important, two very important verses. Verse 5, Abraham gave all that he had unto Isaac and unto the sons of the concubines, that's Hagar and Keturah, unto the sons of the concubines whom Abraham had. Abraham gave gifts. Gave them gifts, but no property, not much wealth. Gave them gifts and sent them away from Isaac, his son, while he yet lived. He made out his will, you see, before he died. Now, if he had been living today, he would have left it to Mid-South Bible College. <laughs> but he wasn't living today. So he made the disposition of his will before he died so the family wouldn't get into a squabble about it after he died. And... Uh, he divided while he left, and then he sent, uh, he sent his sons away. To Isaac he gave all, to the sons of the concubines he gave gifts. They were no doubt generous, but nothing compared to what he gave to Isaac. And then he sent all the sons of Keturah away. Why? So there wouldn't be any, any fighting, any splitting after he died. He'd already done that with Ishmael. Now he does it with Keturah. And he did it while he lived. While Abraham yet lived, he took decisive action to see that God's promise was fulfilled right. Now, what was the motive for his action? Why did he do that? What did God say? In Isaac shall thy seed be called. That was the motive to his action. It wasn't because he did not love Keturah's son. He loved Ishmael deeply, didn't he? Did he? 
Yes, he wanted to be the son. Uh, he loved these six sons. If I read anything in the character of Isaac, I read that he was a man that loved deeply. He even loved Lot, gave him first place. All that I read about Abraham is he's a man of generosity. He's willing to say, take second place and yield to others. And a man who of, of, of a, a sensitive nature, who loved and loved deeply his sons. But he sent away Ishmael, and he sent away Keturah's son. Why? Because God said, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. You see, my friend, Abraham was caught in a bind that you and I are going to be caught in many times. And that's a bind between our natural love and obedience to the Word of God. Our natural love and obedience to the Word of God. And, and a fellow sometimes caught in between this and the ministry. Maybe he's caught in when he's going into the gospel ministry. He's caught between the bind of answering the call of God to his, the ministry and his parents who may be pagans and are opposed to him. And he has to work this problem out. He needs to be in obedience to his parents. A man can never properly obey God and disobey his parents. So he has to be in obedience to his parents. And yet at the same time, he wants to obey God. And if, and if he's earnest, God will work that out. It's a hard problem sometimes. And that was a problem that, that uh, Abram faced. Here were these boys, the sons of Keturah, whom he loved. They were the little boys. When a man was old, he gave them little boys, see? And he loved them and loved them dearly. And yet God said, In Isaac shall thy seed be called. So God gave him wisdom. He hadn't, last time, God had to tell him, didn't he? Last time when it was Hagar and Ishmael, he said, Oh, that Ishmael could stay it. Leave him here. Let him be the son. God said, No, cast him out. Send him away. No. And Abram dragged his feet. God said, Send him away. He dragged his feet. This time, Abram had learned his lesson. And after drag, he knew what he had to do, and he went ahead and did it and sent them away, but he gave them generously, uh, no doubt gave to them generously. Abraham was an exceedingly wealthy man. He gave to them generously, but he left his estate to Isaac. And here he engages in what we may call estate planning. And he disposed his final will, gave it to Isaac, gave gifts to his other sons, but gave them. That, my friend, is a very important principle. And that principle is simply this. God's word should dictate our action. May I say that again? God's word should dictate our action, even in very practical matters. God's word should dictate our action. We had a passage uh, last Friday morning when we were studying together with the men. We had occasion to refer to it. Found over in Second John. In 2 John, um, the Holy Spirit deals with the matter of our giving. And uh, God says in the second epistle to John, if there comes to you one that denies that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, one who denies the incarnation that Jesus is God, number one, don't invite him into your home. And number two, don't bid him God speak. Now, to invite him into your home doesn't mean you can't bring him into your home and put him down on a couch and talk to him. He's not to, or a seat and talk to him. Not talking about that. What he means invite him home is that in those days there were itinerant preachers, and they didn't have the Holiday Inn, see, or Best Western, or whatever it might be. And uh, see, Paul, you know, I had heard recently a, a man was telling me that when a group of preachers get together. And they uh, tell about their experience in Houston. They always tell about the Holiday Inn they stayed in. When Paul got together, he told them about the jails he stayed in. <laughs> Those are his Holiday Inns. But anyway, there weren't any Holiday Inns. So Christian people took these itinerant preachers into their homes. Now, later on, I had to read in the... In, when, I was taking, when I was in seminary, I took an advanced course. And I read through all the apostolic fathers who wrote between 90 and 150 A.D., I read through all of them in the Greek. And I remember running across one of them where they gave, apparently they overdid it, and they were staying too long. And in one of the apostolic fathers, he said, let him stay three days, and they give him his traveling bag. With these itinerant preachers, they'd come and stay three or four days, 
Then they'd give them an honorarium, a love offering, and send them on their way, support them in their ministry. And of course, before they left, they would pray with them that God would bless their ministry. John says, if any man, if any man comes to you, denies that Jesus is God, number one, don't support him. Number two, don't pray for him. Now, you can pray for his salvation. Because if he denies that Jesus is God, he's not saved. You can pray for his salvation, but don't pray for blessing on his ministry if he denies that Jesus is God. That dictates, see that principle, don't support a man that denies the faith. That principle dictates our giving. And you better be careful not to support a liberal institution or a liberal organization because you are a steward of your money. So Abraham took decisive action and he committed himself to the word of God, to God's action, and he set his, I like this, he set his house in order. Set his house in order before he died. What did he do? What did Abraham do before he died, setting his house in order? What did he do? Genesis 23, his wife died, what did he get for her? Burial place. And he got it large enough to take care of Sarah and himself and his sons and their wives. He took care of the burial place, see? What's the second thing he did in Genesis 24? Got a wife for Isaac. That's a seed. And he didn't want to make sure that Isaac wasn't going to end up a bachelor because then that would destroy ruin. So Abraham sent his servants to get a wife for Isaac. Took care of that, number two. Then what's the third thing he took care of? All of his wealth and estate and property so Uncle Sam didn't get it all. See, took care of it all. I had a man come to me. He followed me long distance, way down, Mississippi. Drove 150 miles. He's in the medical profession, and he couldn't find anybody in the city in which he lived who could even relate to what he wanted. He's drawn up a will. And in this will, he says that the rapture, and only a person that believes in the rapture before the tribulation could do this, he's drawn up a will, and he's worked with two unconverted Jewish lawyers from Houston. And he's drawn up this will. And in this will, he's drawn up so that, that uh, if, he do, if he's taken up in the rapture and there are any remaining members of his family who are not saved, sons, all of his sons and daughters are saved, but any grandsons, then the old state go to them. But what if it doesn't, he said? Then it's going to Uncle Sam. And I don't want it to happen to that, that to happen. I want that to happen. So what is he going to do? Well, he said, I want to make sure that it would go to the one thing I know, you know, God is committed to in the tribulation. What is that? The evangelization of Israel. We're going to be the great flaming evangelists in the tribulation. Israel. So he said, I want to give it to a Jewish evangelization society in the tribulation. Now, how am I going to do it? I can't get a Christian lawyer because he's going to go up in the rapture. See? Who am I going to get? Well, what he's got, and he, he got two men. One of them has been his lawyer for many years, an unconverted Jew. And he said, I hope that you can't handle it. What he means is, I hope you'll get saved. He's talked real plain to him. And he went ahead, all right, I'll take care of it. And he put a second one in hoping that the person was going to get saved, see? So if the rapture takes place, he's committed to the integrity and honesty of these two men to dispose of it, and it's written up, he sent me three copies of it. And he drove up here 150 miles to talk to me because nobody in the city in which he lives could relate to the idea of a rapture, see? And the idea of leaving for Jewish evangelism. They just couldn't relate to it. I related to it in 30 seconds. Being about, uh, believes the pre-tribulation rapture to which this school is committed would commit it so that all of us who believe in it can either leave it to the post-tribulationists, see? <laughs> oh, they'll be going up anyway. They'll be going up or we, or their Uncle Sam's going to get to it. See? That, by the way, is another argument for the pre-trib rapture. <laughs> see? <laughs> right now I'm giving my students arguments for the pre-trib rapture. And there's another one. But, uh, you see what happened? What happened? A strong conviction dictated his action. 
a strong belief founded on the Bible dictated the drawing of his will. And Abraham drew up his will, disposed of his estate before he died, and uh, so there wouldn't be any squabble after it happened. And he say, well, why didn't he just leave that to God? Why didn't he just leave it to God? Well, I'll tell you why, if you listen. God does for us what we cannot do, but he expects us to do what we can do. The great illustration of that, the great statement of that is Philippians 2. Work out your own, yeah, that means solution to the problem at Philippi. There was a problem at Philippi. Work out your salvation. Work out the solution to your problem at Philippi, for it's God that works in you, both the will to do of his own good purpose. Work. The great standing illustration of that is Lazarus, the resurrection of Lazarus, the revival of Lazarus. Jesus came. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus came to the tomb. They rolled away the stone. What did Jesus say? Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out. Jesus gave him life. And Lazarus came out, but he has found what? Grave clothes. Then Jesus said, grave clothes, drop off. Did he say that? He said to the disciples, you take off the grave clothes. See, there's a great permanent principle there. What is that? That God does the miraculous. He's going to do what we can't do, but he expects us to do what we can. Could anybody give that Lazarus life? No. God did that. Jesus did that. Could they take off the grave clothes? So Jesus didn't do that, see? See, there's a man over the other side of the city that needs to uh, come to Christ. There's a young woman over the other side of the city that needs to come to Christ. The Lord Jesus, now I hope you, I know I'm not saying this irreverently, the Lord Jesus is not going to get in his car and drive over there and talk to that man. You've got to get in your car and drive over there and use your lips and your hands, your speech, your love, your devotion for that person, your ministry to that person, your witness to that person. You do that and then God will move in and do what he can do, what you can't do, see? And that is to bring him across the line. Don't try to do what only God can do. Don't use any gimmicks to get people to do something which only God can do. At the same time, don't expect God to do what you can do. You know, that's, you know, people expect, well, now, I just pray real hard, the Lord will fill my mind with Bible knowledge. No, he won't. You've got to study study and study. See, God's not going to give you any shortcut. I tell the students, you, you know, if, if you come to an exam and you haven't prayed, you haven't studied, don't ask God to bless your ignorance and give you all the answers if you haven't studied, because you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. God expects us to do what we can. So Abram took care of it. He took care of it, drew up his will, and left it to Isaac. Now, if you want to see me afterwards about Mid-South Bible College, <laughs> I will. Uh, may I say a Shakespearean aside, that if Christian schools are going to exist, Christian schools are going to exist, they're going to exist because of deferred gifts, wills, and legacies. And I know that some of you already talked to me uh, are remembering Mid-South Bible College in your will. General operational fund won't keep it going. Capital expense for a building like this is fine, but it won't do the long range. All schools are involved in what they call deferred giving. That is giving to a school, but it's deferred until someone dies. When we went out to investigate the property out of Siena College many years ago, the sister who directed Siena College, the top lady out there, the sister said, they had two reasons the school, for the demise of the school. Two reasons it went out of existence. Number one, CBC went co-ed. So a number of the young ladies left Siena, went over to CBC. But that wasn't the major reason. She said the major reason was that five years ago we should have started a deferred giving program, and we didn't. And we simply don't have the finances to meet our obligation, so they went out of existence. 
and schools of this nature, the years that lie ahead are going to depend upon, we depend upon God's goodness, but we depend upon, we, we know that years that lie ahead, it's going to depend upon deferred giving. In all these schools, Moody has about 40, 30 to 40 men out over the field of the United States talking to people about their will, legacies. Now let's go to the third one, Abraham's death and burial. Genesis 25, verses 7 to 11. Now let's look at this. Genesis chapter 25, verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abram's life, which he had lived, a hundred and three score and fifteen, a hundred and seventy-five years old. He left Ur of the Chaldees probably when he was about sixty. When he left and went up to Haran, up north, how old was he when he left Haran and came down to Canaan? 75, Genesis chapter 12. You want to turn back there and look? Why don't you we turn back there and look at this? When he came into Canaan, and God gave him the first promise of a son. Genesis chapter 12, verse 4. Genesis 12, 4. Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran, and came into Canaan. 75. Now, when God gave him that promise, in Genesis 17, verse 1, I'm going to come and give you a, uh, a son. Genesis 17, 1. How old was Abraham? 99 years old. Then look over at Genesis chapter 21. Chapter 21, Isaac is born. Genesis 21, 5, we have our next chronological reference. Genesis 21, 5. How old is Abram? 100 years old when Isaac was born. 100 years old. The next one is Genesis 23. Genesis 22 is the, is the sacrifice of Isaac. We don't have, we don't know how old Abraham was or how old Isaac was when he was, when Abram offered Isaac. We don't have any indication. Chapter 23, verse 1. Sarah was 127 years old. Uh, verse 2, and Sarah died. Now, Abram was 10 years older, so how old was Abram? 137. Isaac was born when Abram was 100, Genesis 21. And he was 137, Genesis 23, when Sarah died. So Isaac was offered between 0 and 37. How old? Nobody knows. Their guess is anywhere from 15 to 30. I suppose he was 20, 22, but nobody really knows. He was 137 when Sarah died. Then the next is Genesis 25, verse 7. When Abraham died, he was how old? 175. That means he lived how long after Sarah? How long? 30 33 years, is that right? 38 years? 38 years. 38 years after Sarah died. You know, it's kind of a sad thing to see a man lose his wife. And uh, um, I don't know why it is, but it seems that a, 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 a wife, 60, 65, can lose her husband and adjust to it better than a man can lose his wife at 60 or 65 and adjust to that. Now, why that is, ladies, I don't know. <laughs> but there's something about it. That in the normal circumstances, a wife seems to be able to adjust to it better and than a man can. I had a dear friend of mine over in Formosa, some of you know, who's 79 years of age, lost his wife. And I remember she talked to me when she was over here, back here in Memphis. She said, you know, Jim outlived his first wife, and I'm his second wife, and he may outlive me. And that was kind of prophetic, wasn't it? six, eight months, about a year later, she passed uh, into glory, and he's still living. And uh, it's kind of sad to see a man up in years lose his wife. He seems to take it harder. Isaac was 180 years old. Uh, was, uh, Abraham was 175. Isaac, 180. Jacob, 147, if my memory serves me right. And Joseph was 110. Abraham, 175. Isaac lived five more years than his daddy, 180. 
Jacob, if my memory serves me right, 147. And Joseph, well, he died when he was a boy, 110 years old. See? <laughs> All right, now verse 8. Here's the death of Abraham. Verse 8. All right, now let's read Genesis 25, verse 8. Then Abraham died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, was gathered to his people. Notice two things. First of all, it says he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. It says the same thing three ways, doesn't it? And I think the idea behind these three statements is that Abraham finished his life. See, God gives us a course to run, and he finished it. Acts chapter 13 says that when David had, David had finished his work, then he fell on asleep. When he finished his work, then he fell on sleep. It doesn't even have the word there. When our bookstore manager many years ago, Sam Reed, passed away, and George Hurd and I had his funeral, I preached from Acts 13 on that little statement about, uh, about David. <clears throat> and... Um, says that uh, David, here it is, beautiful statement, Acts 13, 36. Now, don't look there. David, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was laid unto his father. That's a beautiful statement. David, after he had served his own generation in the will of God, fell on asleep. He finished his work. God took him home. What did Paul say, 2 Timothy? I'm ready to be offered as a sacrifice for 2 Timothy 4, 6. I finished the course, fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, I'm ready to go. Here's Abraham. He lived a good old age. He finished the course that God gave him to run. God didn't have to pull him out of the race early. God pulled Ananias out of the race early, pulled those people in 1 Corinthians 11 out of the race early. I hope he won't pull me out of the race early, see? God didn't have to pull David out or Abraham out or Paul out. He finished his course. And he, and he, and he old years and up in years, 175, and he went on home. Then look at the last little statement. And he was gathered to his people. Now, what does that mean? When you look here, it's important to observe that. Liberals say gathered to his people. Well, that simply means he was buried in, in the graveyard, gathered to his people. But that isn't what it means. Because his people, except for Sarah, and gathered to his people indicates more than one. Sarah was there, but gathered to his people would mean back at Ur of the Chaldees. That's where his people were. So when it says, and it says this again and again in the Old Testament, that so-and-so was gathered to his people, it doesn't mean that his body went in the grave. It means his soul went to where his people are, to the presence of God. That means that the Old Testament teaches the immortality of the soul. The liberals deny that. We affirm it. He was gathered to his people. It means his soul consciously went where God's saints are, gathered to his people, life after death. Then his burial in verses 9 and 10. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Remember we studied that a couple of weeks ago? He had to barter for that, didn't he? And uh, from Heth, and he got it, buried Sarah there. Now he's buried there. Later on, Jacob and Joseph will be buried there. The cave of Machpelah and the field of Ephraim, the son of Zohar the Hittite, which is before Mamre, the field which Abram purchased of the sons of Heth, there was Abram buried and Sarah his wife. That's, I think that's a lovely touch. There are a number of lovely touches here. You know where Abram wanted to be buried? Right next to his wife. And there's nothing wrong with that. See? He wanted to be buried right next to his wife. So when the resurrection comes, he didn't have to look around for her. See? <laughs> she, she'd be right there. You notice, by the way, he was buried, not cremated. And Sarah was buried, not cremated. And all the saints in the Old Testament Although they were surrounded by nations that cremated, they were buried because they believed in the resurrection of the body. And Abraham was buried, buried right next to his dear wife. That's a lovely touch. Notice something else that stands out. Who are the two, who are the two boys that are here? Isaac and Ishmael. Death has a way of reuniting 
Death has a way of reuniting people who've been separated and who have some animosity against one another. And Ishmael had made fun of Isaac when he was a boy. See? And Isaac's daddy, Abraham, had sent Ishmael away. And they were somewhat natural enemies. And no doubt they kind of despised one another. But the common father died, Abraham died. And they both came to bury him. Ishmael came some distance. Isaac was there, but Ishmael traveled some distance. Together, they buried their father, Abraham. And there's no hint that Ishmael came there to see how the will was going to be divided up. See, it doesn't say that attorney so-and-so sent a letter. <laughs> see, it just says that he got there to help him bury. And I don't know whether Ishmael got anything or not. Well, so much. Verse 11, we have the last note. God blessed Isaac after Abraham's death in verse 11. It came to pass after the death of Abram that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by the, what is that called? Well. What's another word for well? B-E-E-R. Sometimes it's called Beer Laharoi, and sometimes it's called the well of Laharoi. Look at... Um, if I can find it, I got it somewhere. Look at Genesis 16, 14. There's some wonderful associations here. Genesis 16, 14. Wherefore the well was called, well, what is it called? Beer Laharoi. That beer is well. The well of him who sees me, who lives and sees me. Then over at Genesis 24. Look over Genesis 24, verse 61. We had this last week, 2461. Rebekah rose and her damsels, they rode upon the camels and followed the man. The servant took Rebekah, went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the, what's another word for well? Beer Laharoi. That's going to be a very um, sacred place to Isaac. Isaac's known as the well digger. We're going to see in two chapters, Isaac is the well digger. And here is the most famous one. So we read in verse 11, came to pass after the death of Abram that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt by Beer Laharoi. May I point out something? Will you look here? There are two things here. One is that the reason this statement is in here is that, that uh, I think of a purpose, naturally would be, and that is that although Abram's died, God is going to begin to fulfill the promise to the seed. Here's the beginning of it. God promised him your seed, Isaac. And so immediately upon the death of Abraham, God begins to deal with his son Isaac and to bless him. Then old Griffith Thomas said somewhere in his commentary, right on this verse. Now, are you listening? Because some of you have a trouble. Some of you, especially older, you've sat under a pastor for 20, 25 years. And you think that when God took him along, that ends the ministry at that church. Griffith Thomas, the great Anglican uh, Bible student, one of the three founders of Dallas Theological Seminary, said of this verse, God buries his workmen, but the work of God goes on. God buries his workmen, but the work of God goes on. God buries an Augustine, but the work goes on. God buries a Martin Luther, but the work goes on. God buried a D.L. Moody, but the Moody Bible Institute goes on. And God someday will bury Billy Graham. That work will go on one way or the other. God buries his workmen, but the work of God goes on. Don't get too attached to a pastor. You ought to love him and respect him see, and pray for him. But remember, when God takes him, he's going to give another one. Now, he won't give one just like him. In fact, he'll probably be a good deal different, see. <laughs> he'll be a good deal different. And that's a sorry thing when uh, we start to read one pastor in terms of another. But remember, God buries his workmen, but the work of God goes on. You don't think that God is trembling at the parapets of heaven, nervously watching to see if his work's going to be completed, do you? No, God's going to finish it. He's going to get it. He'll gather up a workman. Now let's read these verses, 12 to 18. History of Ishmael. 
The final matter to be set forth now in the life of Abram before moving on to Isaac is the listing of his descendants through Ishmael. How many, how many wives did Isaac have, did Abram have? Sarah, Keturah, Hagar. The descendants of Keturah, where are they? 25, 1 to 4, aren't they? Is that right? Let me put those down. Descendants of, of um, Keturah, the descendants of Keturah, they're found in 25, 1 to 4. The second one was Hagar. Where are the descendants of Hagar found? 25, 12, 18. Now, what was the third one? Sarah. And her descendants are found beginning at verse 19 to 34. Jacob and Esau. So he got all the families of Abram right in Genesis 25. You'll be a father of many nations. So all the descendants. Keturah, the six sons, 25, 1 to 4. Hagar with Ishmael and Sarah who had Isaac. And from Isaac came Jacob and Esau. They're all given. Now let's Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abram's son. Now do you recall, it's been a good while since we had that little phrase. These are the generations of. How should we read that? This is the history of. We had that in Genesis 2-4. We had it in Genesis 5-1. We had it in Genesis 6-9. We had it in Genesis 9-1, um, if my memory serves me right. This is the history of. We had it twice near the end of chapter 11. And here's the next one. The last time, if I'm not mistaken, was in Genesis chapter 11. We only had it once. Genesis 11. And that was where it said, these are the generations of, or this is the history of Terah. 1127. Now here's the next one. These are the generations of, or this is the history of Ishmael. Now let's read it. Genesis 25, verse 19. This is the history of, uh, 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 pardon me, Isaac. No, 12. Huh. What do you have in verse 12? Generation of Ishmael. What do you have in verse 19? Isaac. See, he gets Ishmael out of the way. Why? First the natural, 1 Corinthians 15, then the spiritual. Here's the descendants of the natural. Now this is the history of Ishmael, Abram's son, who Hagar the Egyptian hairs handmade born to Abram. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generation. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, or Nebajoth. That's the Nabataeans who built the city of Petra, or Petra. The Nabataeon, and Kedar, and Abdeel, and Mibsan, and Mishma, and Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Naphish, Kedma. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names. By their towns, and by their encampments, how many? How many sons did Jacob have? And how many sons did Ishmael have? Twelve. Twelve princes, according to their nation. You remember, uh, um, and this is somewhat of a fulfillment of a promise, and it's found over in, um, uh, let's see, over in Genesis 21, 18. Can you turn back there with me? Genesis 21, verse 17. Here's Hagar, verse 17. God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Rise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hands. For I'll make him what? Where's the fulfillment? Genesis 25, right here. I'll make of him a great nation, because out of him came 12 princes. These are the years of life of Ishmael, 137 years old. How old was Ishmael's mama when she died? How old was, well, we don't know. How old was Sarah when, Ishmael, when she died? 127. And Abraham was 137. And Ishmael was 137 when he died. And he died and was gathered where? Same idea. And they, that is the descendants, dwelt from Havilah unto Shur, that's before Egypt, as thou goest toward Assyria. Now, if you look here, and you think in your mind, here's Egypt, here's the Mediterranean, here's Egypt, Assyria's way over here, and this 
It means that they dwell where the oil is today, partially. This is the Negev. That's the Sinai, northern part of the Sinai Peninsula, the Negev, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Great Arabian Peninsula. And these people dwelt in that stretch that runs from Egypt, starting on the east side of Egypt, the, the wilderness, the Negev, running across the Arabian Peninsula over toward the Mesopotamian area. That's their, that's their, uh, the place where they dwell. All right, we're finished with Abraham. We finished Abram's life. It's a great life. Now, what can we say? Well, I want to say three or four things by way of conclusion. Did I put them down on the outline? All right, let's give an overview, a quick overview of Abraham's life and significance. The greatness of Abraham. Abraham is great four ways. There's a fourfold greatness to Abraham. One, personally. Abraham was great personally. By that I mean he was great in his own person. His character. He was a man of integrity, a man of courage, a man of faithfulness, a man of patience, a man of generosity. All you have to do is study these 13 chapters and study the character of Abraham. And that would make a great study. Abraham was a great man personally. He towers in the Old Testament. Second, he was a great man racially. He's a great man racially. Three great, three parties, three groups trace uh, back to Abraham. The Jew, the Arab, and the Christian. He's a great man racially. The Jew and the Arab, physically and the Christian spiritually. Third, he's a great man spiritually. By that, I mean he is the channel of the Messiah. What do we read in Matthew 1.1? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of... Yeah, he's a great man spiritually. Uh, through Abram came the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And he is a great man typically. Great man typically. Now, I'd like to spend time on each one of these, but I can't. You're just going to have to take your Bible work on it. What do I mean that he's a great man typically? Well, what I mean is this. Um, what is the one outstanding quality that the New Testament latches on in the life of Abraham? Faith. Faith. He's the great exemplar of faith. When God wants to illustrate faith, saving faith in the New Testament, it's Abraham. When he wants to illustrate walking by faith, it's Abraham. When he wants to illustrate faith, demonstrating itself by works, it's Abraham. Matter of fact, it's an interesting thing. We say that we're justified by faith. We're also justified by works. Romans 3, 27, we conclude, therefore, that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Justified by faith alone, sola fide. But James 2, you see then that a man is not justified by faith alone, but by works. Now, we took that up one night. We studied that. And we showed that, that Abraham was regenerated, justified, regenerated by faith. But the reality of his regeneration, the reality of his being born again, was demonstrated by his works. But they're both true, see? And it's an interesting thing that God didn't have to get two men. He didn't have to get David in to illustrate one and Moses to illustrate another. He didn't have to get Isaiah to illustrate one and Jeremiah to illustrate another. He got the same man, Abraham, showed how he was justified by faith, Romans 4, and how he's justified by works, James chapter 2. He's a great exemplar of faith in the New Testament. The second thing I want to look at is the witness of God to Abraham. You see that down in the outline? Abraham was God's pilgrim. Uh, no, what's the first one? The witness of God to Abraham. Abraham was God's pilgrim, God's prophet, God's friend. He's called all those. He's called that. He's not called a pilgrim. Well, he is. God's pilgrim, Hebrews 11. God's prophet, Genesis 20, verse 7. 
God's friend, Isaiah 41, verse 8. He's God's pilgrim. That speaks of separation. God's pilgrim, that speaks of separation. God's prophet, that speaks of a spokesman. God's friend, that speaks of fellowship. God's pilgrim, pilgrim, that's separation. Where did he separate from first? Earth. Second, from Herod. Then third, from Lot. He had to leave Lot. Then he had to leave Ishmael. And then God asked him to give up his own son. Separation, separation. He went out. Again and again, the Bible says, he went out. My friend, that's the keynote of his life. He lived as a stranger. He didn't sink his roots down deep here. He looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. He considered himself a pilgrim. Lot went down and built a three-level house in Sodom. But old Abraham, who could have bought Lot out ten times and not even missed it. Abram dwelt in what? A pilgrim. Pilgrim. He was separated. And God, may I say to this, God can only bless a separated Christian. You know, when I came to South, there were many wonderful things that I experienced. And I've loved my 25, 26 years in the South and in Memphis. And the, the ta sometimes it's hard to tell whether a man is um, really regenerated or he's just very culturally polite down in the South. Now, you don't have that trouble to get to Chicago. And I come from California, I don't have much trouble there, see. But down south, it's a little hard sometimes. But there's one note I missed. Can I say it kindly, and you'll come back next week? I missed the note of separation, the doctrine of personal separation. See? And um, things get, tend to be, get a little gray. See? The world drinks, well, the deacon drinks. The world gauges in this kind of amusement? Well, the Christian does anyway, see. And sometimes you can't, it's like the boy that went in the army. Uh, and his father was a Christian, the boy was a Christian, a professing Christian. And the father said to the son after a year, son, how'd you get along in the army for a year? He said, God along, wonderful. I was there a whole year, and they never found out I was a Christian. <laughs> well, you see, that's the way some people are. Abraham was separated. And my friend, God can only bless life of a separated Christian. Separation from a world that's living in and loving sin. Now that's not isolation. That's the monastery. That's the nunnery. Not isolation, but insulation. Like that electric wire that comes in here. It's not isolated from the room, but it's insulated. In the world, but not of it. And a Christian ought not to be isolated, but he ought to be insulated. And there ought to be something you can tell different see, about a Christian. If he looks the same and smells the same and goes to the same places, goes with the same habits, well, there's, you know, there's something that's rather strange about that. I guess I've just never gotten accustomed to that. God's pilgrim. The term that's used against it is legalism, but it's not. See. There's a difference between legalism and separation. God's pilgrim, he was separated. Lot went down to Sodom. Abram would even pitch his tent close to it. He didn't even get down in there. He kept away up in the mountain. Second, he was God's prophet. He was spokesman for God. May I say something else? You know who was not a spokesman for God? Lot. You know why? He was living down in Sodom, engaging in the same amusements and pleasures that Sodom was. When he came to his boys, they laughed at him. Old Abraham, old Uncle Abraham, see, that funny mentalist. <laughs> see, the funny, that's what they say about a fundamentalist. Funny mentalist up there on the top of the mountain, see, up there isolated. See, he's <laughs> way up there yonder. He's way out of the swim. But when Abraham spoke, they listened. When Lot spoke, they laughed. See? And, uh, uh, like, uh, well, I won't say it. God's prophet. Only, and you know why? It's only because he was a pilgrim that he could be a spokesman. Third thing, he was a friend, God's friend, fellowship. He walked with God, and God could tell him what he had in mind. 
All right, number three, quickly. The symbols of Abraham's life. What were they? Tent and altar. Did we, did we, we studied that, didn't we? Genesis 13. When Abraham got back from Egypt, what's the first thing he, he pitched his tent and he built a, yeah, no tent and no altar down in Egypt. And that's why he got down in Egypt. When he got back, he pitched his tent, a pilgrim, and he built an altar. That's a worshiper. You want God to use your life? Then it must be marked by an altar, which speaks of fellowship, and the tent, which speaks of a pilgrim life, separation. The tent and the altar. Number four, the four great crises in Abram's life. You, you remember that, don't we? He left Ur, left Lot, left Ishmael, offered Isaac. In Hebrews 11, it says that God tested him. Those were tests. Seven manifestations of God to Abraham. Do you have that down, number five? I'm going to let you read Genesis 12 to 25 and find out the seven times God spoke to him. You may come up with eight. If you do, don't call me. <laughs> See, I'll believe you. I'll take your word for it. Number six, the New Testament appraisal of Abraham. Number seven is the covenant with Abraham. We've already studied that. Uh, number six is the New Testament appraisal. You'll have to study. May I give you four passages? Now, Abram's mentioned many, many times New Testament, but here are four major passages. Galatians 3. Galatians 3. Whole chapter. Do I have that? Galatians 3. All right, Galatians 3. That's where it speaks about Christ coming, who's the end of the law. Abraham, John 8, 58. Abram saw my day and rejoiced in it. He looked for Christ. Galatians 3. Romans 4. You have it there? Justified by faith. Justified by faith. James 2, justified by works. And Hebrews 11, walked by faith. Walked by faith. Obedience. Faith justifies, faith works, faith walks in obedience, faith obeys to look for Christ. And the covenant with Abraham, you know that. May I ask you in closing? Uh, because you're going to get into this. Remember, when we studied this, there are four great covenants that undergird the doctrine of premillennialism. Why am I a premillennialist? Not simply because of Revelation 20. If that's all there was, I'd believe in it. But I'm a premillennialist because of the four great unconditional covenants God gave to Israel. Abrahamic, Palestinian, Davidic, New Covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is basic. The Palestinian expanded on the land promises. The Davidic expanded on the seed promises. God said to David, about 1,000 B.C., I uh, said to Solomon, uh, pardon me, he said to David, uh, I'm going to give you a son. And to that son, I'm going to give to you and that son a throne forever and a kingdom uh, and a house. A house forever a throne forever and a kingdom forever. You looking here? A, 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 a house. What is a house? A dynasty. Like the house of the steward. Father, son, father, son, father, son. A dynasty. A house forever. Number two, a kingdom. What's that? Territory. Like the kingdom of Great Britain. Means a territory. The United States, we don't call ourselves a kingdom. But the kingdom of the United States would be the territory, the land map. So the kingdom promised to David, and he gives it, he, uh, we looked at it, the boundaries from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates, the boundaries, the kingdom. And number three, a throne forever. And the throne is the seat of authority from which a man rules. The throne would be the president's White House or Paris or Moscow or London, number 10 Downing Street the seat of authority. So God promised to David three things. A dynasty forever, house. You know who the last one in that house is? Jesus Christ. He didn't have any children, did he? He's the last one. The house, house, 
Number two, the kingdom. Number three, the throne. A thousand years later, when the angel came to Mary, the angel said to Mary, you'll conceive in your womb, bear a son, call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And his father, God, shall give to him the throne of his father, David. He'll rule over the house of Jacob, and he'll give to him the kingdom of his father. What did God promise to Jesus a thousand years later? A throne forever, a house forever, a kingdom forever. Now you say, what do the ah mills do with that? They allegorize it. They spiritualize it. They spiritualize it. Now look here. One of the basic principles in, in, in interpretation is interpret consistently. God said to Mary, uh, you'll conceive. Now is that fulfilled?